Welcome to Let's Talk CP, the new podcast series about all things cerebral palsy, presented by the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. Each episode features different clinicians, parents, people with CP, and other experts talking about ways to help you better navigate your journey with CP. I'm Jason Benetti, play-by-play announcer of the Chicago White Sox and ESPN, and I have CP. Welcome to Let's Talk CP. I'm your host, Jen Lyman, and content manager for CerebralPalsyResource.org, a product of the Cerebral Palsy Foundation. I'm also the parent of a 17-year-old son with mixed spastic dystonic quadriplegic cerebral palsy, and today I am so fortunate to be hosting Dr. Debbie Song, a neurosurgeon with Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare, and Dr. Marcy Ward, a physiatrist with Gillette Children's Specialty Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Song and Dr. Ward. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us today. Well, I'm thrilled to have you both here. And let's start with you, Dr. Song. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are? And um, yeah, just a, a little introduction to yourself. All right. My name is Debbie Song. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon at Gillette. Um, so as a neurosurgeon, I am involved in the diagnosis, uh, treatment, and management of certain conditions of the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nerves. That's pretty fascinating. How, I'm just curious how you decided to become a pediatric neurosurgeon. So I think neurosurgery, and in particular pediatric neurosurgery, is unique insofar as we can um, really deal with the brain, the spinal cord, and the peripheral nerves. Um, in many cases, uh, adult neurosurgeons have a subspecialty focus. So some may treat brain tumors, some may treat spinal cord tumors, some may treat just uh, degenerative spine uh, conditions. But in uh, pediatric neurosurgery, we really have uh, a full spectrum of conditions involving brain, spinal cord, spine, and the peripheral nerves. Um, and we also get to treat patients throughout different stages and ages of development. Mm -hmm. In terms of how I particularly or personally got involved in neurosurgery or why I decided to become a neurosurgeon, I think uh, yeah. um, personally, it had a lot of to, to do with uh, kind of mentorship of people that I observed and admired uh, throughout training as a medical student um, that really influenced me in terms of neurosurgery in particular. Uh, it's a really fascinating uh, specialty that involves a lot of technology, and there are constantly uh, new developments, new surgeries, new techniques, new technologies that we use that are really advancing the field, things that we never did even 10 years ago. So it's a constantly yeah. moving field. It keeps you interested, and you can see, you can see yeah. yourself making a difference in the lives of, of children. Absolutely. And how did you, uh, it, it, what brought you to Gillette? Oh, um, so Gillette, you know, is a very unique kind of subspecialty, uh, specialty hospital, uh, specialty hospital. So I really liked the mission of Gillette mm -hmm. as well as the, the, the care model. Yeah. Awesome. And, and Dr. Ward, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, grateful to talk with you guys today, Jen, for sure. My name is Dr. Marcy Ward. I'm a pediatric rehabilitation medicine specialist or a pediatric physiatrist, and I'm at Gillette Children's in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, yeah, I think uh, kind of adding on to what 
Dr. Song said, the beautiful thing about working at Gillette is really being able to work in a multidisciplinary group of providers where our mm -hmm. mission is all lined up the same. So Dr. Song is a pediatric neurosurgeon and I'm a pediatric physiatrist, but we both have the same mission for our patients, which is maximizing their function um, despite any limitations that they have and, um, you know, helping them to do as much as possible in life. Yeah, and having that team approach in, in a specialty healthcare setting uh, must be a real special uh, place to work. Well, I was just curious, as a physiatrist, I, I bet you get a lot of questions about what a physiatrist does and, and um, uh, you know, kind of describe a little bit more about, about what you do. Yeah, we're a really uh, unique group that um, not a lot of folks know what a physiatrist is. They confuse us with psychiatrists and podiatrists right. all the time. Right. Yeah. But as uh, <laughs> physiatry is actually uh, a medical specialty that was uh, developed in the 1950s. And really, the work of a physical medicine rehabilitation doctor is to help a patient who has a disability um, be able to get about and do about and move on and do everything that they want to do in life despite any limitation that they have. So um, physiatry training is really about maximizing what a patient can do despite any disability or difficulty that they're having so that they can fully participate in life. And as a pediatric physiatrist, I'm first trained as a general physiatrist and then specialize in working with children. And that's wonderful. And I, I can imagine that, that, you know, with the kids, that's really, I would, I would think that it's incredibly rewarding um, because they are, you know, they want to get back to the business of being kids and the business of, you know, development and, and life and play and fun. Um, and, you know, for to have a, a career that allows you to, to maximize that um, has, has got to be tremendously rewarding. So, Dr. Ward, does a person with CP usually need to get a referral to see a physiatrist? How does that how does all that work? Yeah, um, yeah, that's interesting, Jen. I mean, it's a little bit variable, right? It depends on what you mean by referral, right? So um, uh -huh. an insurance company might require you to have a referral to see someone. Maybe you have to have your primary doctor refer you to Dr. Marcy Ward, right? Um, mm -hmm. But um, I'll tell you, you don't need a referral to come see me. I don't require it, right? So if, if you were to, you know, call Gillette and say, you know, I want to um, see a pediatric physiatrist, uh, can I get an appointment? They would give you an appointment. Um, okay. Sometimes it's about just locating the resource. So who mm -hmm. is in your backyard? I mean, you know, I kind of mentioned that we're a little known specialty. It's only been around mm -hmm. since the 1950s. And, you know, to understand that there's this niche uh, group of individuals that take care of uh, children and adults with uh, childhood onset disability um, that's that's a pretty unique group, right? So if you don't know that we exist, um, you're not going to know to look for that referral. If you know that um, we exist, then, you know, teaching your primary doctor about us and saying, hey, we'd like to see someone that could help us with this aspect of our life, which really is focusing on um, maximizing everything that you can do despite any disability or limitation. 
So I don't think you need a referral unless your insurance company requires you to have one. Got it. Got it. And as far as um, neurosurgery goes, Dr. Song, is that the same situation with neurosurgery or do you have to have a referral for neurosurgery from a primary care physician or uh, from somebody else? It's pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So usually the patients that I see are referred because they have some imaging concern or they have developmental or structural uh, concern related to their nervous system. Okay. And are there like specific types of CP that, that typically get referred to a neurosurgeon? Well, the patients that we see with cerebral palsy, typically as a neurosurgeon, I offer cervical treatment. So the two main conditions that I typically see in patients with cerebral palsy are hypertonia, whether that's spasticity or dystonia, or uh, hydrocephalus. So a portion of patients with CP are um, have hydrocephalus and have uh, surgical issues related to hydrocephalus. And so those are the two main conditions that patients with CP have that I surgically treat. I see. Okay. Dr. Ward, what, you know, I know in my personal experience with physiatry, one of the big things that I've been um, so impressed with is, is the equipment part of it and, you know, how you're the physiatrist's understanding of equipment um, and, and really being able to make recommendations and um, that kind of, um, you know, understanding how the different wheelchairs work and the different bracing and the different, um, you know, gait trainers and, and uh, different mobility devices. Uh, I, you know, that's been something very impressive that we've seen in our personal situation. What are some other reasons um, that would, that somebody would see? I know, you know, participation is a big deal for physiatrists. Um, you know, why else would somebody see a physiatrist? Boy, um, Jen, really the work that we do is so comprehensive and so much focused on looking at at the entire patient and how to maximize mm-hmm. what they're able to do. So, you know, in coming to a physiatrist, I mean, some of the main things that we're doing is, yeah, we're triaging to make sure that the patient is doing everything from a mobility standpoint that they can. So mm-hmm. we want our patients to be able to get um, uh, get about for short distances in any manner that they can, medium distances for any manner in which they can, and long distances for because that's how we get out in life, right? right. And so right. Um, you know we're, we're looking to see you know for a short distance um, will a pair of crutches do um, if they even need that? Maybe they only need a brace for short distances, right? For very long mm-hmm. distances, maybe they need a power wheelchair, and then there's every you know scope of piece of equipment on the in-betweens. But, you know, looking to get out in community is uh, number one. Number two is taking care of yourself um, as best you can or participating in your cares as best as you can. And sometimes that's equipment, again. So then mm-hmm. sometimes we're back at a, um, a shower bench or a bath chair, um, but maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's a grab maybe um, it's none of that. And it's learning with the help of a speech therapist and an occupational therapist of how to direct your cares. Um, Please, Mm -hmm. now, um, will you do the shampoo for my hair? So there are things that, you know, um, we can provide independence for the patient in their activities of daily living and what they do. Um, When we think about even a therapy intervention, such as an occupational therapy or speech therapy visit. Uh, Speaking of speech therapy, then we're also looking at how they communicate. How are 
you know, how is the um, patient uh, able to communicate and interact in their environment? Um, sometimes, and frankly, many times, there are no concerns with communications whatsoever. Uh, but if there are challenges, then how do we help maximize that? Is it speech therapy? Is it augmentative communication devices? Um, other supportive means of uh, helping the uh, patient to interact in the community? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so those are some of the things. Braces, I t- touched on that briefly when I was talking yeah. about moving from place to place. Think about the, you know, orthotic that will maximally support the patient um, in their activities, but um, not overdo it. It's part of the balance as well. We want to give you all the bells and whistles that you need, but uh, not so much that you don't need because that gets cumbersome. Right. And, you know, uh, for our pediatric patients, partly about uh, getting the kids into school, interacting with school, interfacing with school because the work of a pediatric patient is being a student. For our adult patients, it's about how do we get you into community? How do we get you into gainful employment? How do we get you independent in your community? So sometimes it's resources with social work um, and uh, and teachers and uh, neuropsychologists yeah. that help us with understanding how the brain works. So uh, it's really, as a physiatrist, a lot of coordination of what's needed to get the patient Mm -hmm. more into life and reach the goals that they're trying to reach despite the limitations that they're dealing with. Um, And so it's harnessing those tools, whether it be equipment, orthotics, therapies, support services. Um, And for me in particular, you know, the the last level of that is really getting them into community deeply. So with recreation or with sport and so that is part of my typical visit with a patient is making sure that we're getting them into community in that manner. Yeah, and that's something near and dear to my heart for sure. And, you know, speaking of uh, the way you you just elaborated on all of this, it sounds a lot to me like a physiatrist is, is sort of a quarterback and, and you're, you're kind of managing the whole, the whole uh, team there and um, uh, coordinating. You, you ultimately can have the capability, maybe not in all systems, but um, in a lot of systems, have the capability of, of managing a lot of the different uh, team members um, uh, for the for the cerebral palsy patient and potentially across the lifespan. Am, am I am I um, onto something here, or is that? Um, you know, yeah, no, that- I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, um, I, I'm. I'm so bad with football references that I think quarterback <laughs> might be okay. Um, but, you know, I think, of, you know, when Dr. Song and I work together, it's incredibly collaborative. Um, if I have mm-hmm. a patient who I think may benefit from her services, um, then, you know, I refer them to visit with her about something in specific. Um, but typically what I'll hear, you know, back from her is, yes, that's a great idea. And um, by the way, have you thought about this or have you talked to another specialist about that? Um, and then together, she and I will be contacting another specialist or, you know, coordinating with another specialist and and, and on and on it goes. So um, for us, when we're working together, we're really working together. It's not that I refer a patient to Dr. Song and never see them again. And mm-hmm. uh, she doesn't refer them to me and expect that um, she won't get to visit with them again either. Um, we're continually working together on yeah. patients. So that that leads me to my next question, which actually was an experience that we've had as a family where it has been a collaboration between a neurosurgeon and a physiatrist, 
where um, which is specifically about the backlifin pump. And in our situation, the backlifin pump was placed and by the neurosurgeon and was managed by the physiatrist. So I, let's let's talk about that, Dr. Song. Maybe you can tell us about what a backlifin pump is, um, and then I, I'm I'm maybe making an assumption here, Dr. Ward, but maybe you could then talk about how it's managed. Yeah, sense. so, um, yeah, baclofen is a medication that we use to um, help with muscle uh, tightness, muscle uh, spasticity, and we can also implant a device called a baclofen pump through an operation that also treats hypertonia. So, the baclofen pump consists of a pump that looks like a hockey puck that sits underneath the skin in the abdomen. And it's connected to a catheter, which is basically a thin hollow tube. That catheter is tunneled underneath the skin and then goes into the spinal fluid sac, so-called the dural sac. And the catheter tip sits in the spinal fluid, which is a fluid that bathes the spinal cord and nerve roots, and continuously delivers baclofen into the spinal fluid. So patients can get baclofen and they can take that orally or they can get it through their G-tube. Oftentimes, baclofen at uh, baclofen tablets or baclofen medication that is taken either orally or through the G tube to get a kind of an appropriate effect um, and a reduction in muscle tone, patients may develop systemic side effects. And so, the baclofen pump is a way that you can deliver that medication to the spinal fluid space. And so, for various reasons, you don't need as high a dose that your body sees through the baclofen pump as you would take through a pill. And so the systemic side effects are a lot less with a baclofen pump. And mm-hmm. so that benefits people and treats their muscle spasticity and in some cases their dystonia as well. And can you talk a little bit about, Dr. Ward, I'm, I'm making an assumption that you manage baclofen pumps. Um, uh, if, if not, maybe you can still talk about it for us. <laughs> or if not, Dr. Song, maybe sure. you can talk about it. No, I'm happy to uh, talk about it. Um, you know, the neurosurgeons do the heavy lifting of uh, doing the intrathecal baclofen pump implantation and the surgery to place the catheter for us. And after the patient has recovered under their care for the first few days um, postoperatively, then they move over so that the uh, rehabilitation medicine team takes care of them and manages their pump, that's not the same at all institutions. At some institutions, I suspect the neurosurgeons and their team of uh, support staff are managing the pumps, I imagine. Um, Sometimes I um, believe uh, neurologists I know of are doing it as well. So, um, but at our institution, yeah, the um, physiatrists are managing the pumps. It's usually a matter of figuring out um, a delicate balance of the dose of the medication Mm -hmm to see if we can reach uh, what I refer to as the sweet spot, which is where the um, intrathecal baclofen is reducing their spasticity and their hypertonia best, but not leaving them with any side effects of, oh, I'm too weak, or, oh, I'm having trouble holding my head up, or um, now I can't stand as easily, or now I can't walk as easily. So it's a little bit of a balance. Mm -hmm. If we take away too much of the tone, sometimes the lower extremities can be left weak, or the trunk can be weak, or the head and neck can feel weak. But uh, we're adjusting that dose usually over a period of time. Uh, Sometimes that Arriving at that sweet spot comes uh, quickly, and we know that before the patient even leaves the hospital. And other times, we're 
while the patient is back into their own environment, their own typical day, we're adjusting that maybe maybe every uh, week, every couple weeks, every month to get it just right so that the pump is doing its best work for them um, throughout mm-hmm. their days. Yeah, and it seems like there's some uh, some major advantages to it. Um, and then, you know, there are some, some disadvantages. Um, you know, you do have to go back to the hospital, have it refilled and, um, and programmed and that kind of stuff. Um, but for some people, it, it, it does seem like it's a, it's a really great alternative, um, to oral baclofen. Um, kind of staying with, uh, with neurosurgeries, uh, can you tell us about a little bit about SDR and, you know, how would a family or an adult know, um, when they should consider something like, um, selective dorsal rhizotomy. Um, I think this would be a good one for Dr. Song still. Sure. An SDR or a selective dorsal rhizotomy is a uh, operation that neurosurgeons do to permanently reduce muscle tone and eliminate spasticity, uh, particularly in the lower extremities. So there are different variations about how an SDR can be done, but essentially they all involve Uh, looking at the sensory nerve roots that carry information from the lower extremities, uh, testing those sensory nerve roots, and then uh, cutting the abnormal nerve roots. So it's thought basically that spasticity is due to overactive uh, abnormal signals that are carried by uh, sensory or what we call dorsal roots. So Mm -hmm. uh, during an SDR operation, uh, once we have uh, the sensory roots exposed that carry information, like I said, from the lower extremities. I always have uh, a pediatric physiatrist, either Dr. Ward or one of her colleagues in the operating room uh, with me. And so when we isolate uh, a sensory root at any given lumbar level, for example, we divide that root into tiny, tiny rootlets so we can tease it apart. And then mm-hmm. we literally test each of those tiny rootlets um, with, an, a little, with a little bit of electrical current. And Dr. Ward is um, monitoring kind of the leg responses to that stimulation that we do on that rootlet. And uh, she has certain criteria where she says, yes, that looks like it's an abnormal rootlet that's contributing to spasticity. And if that's the case, we cut that rootlet. If it okay. does not test abnormally and is not thought to be contributing to spasticity, then we don't cut that rootlet. Test maybe 150, 200 nerve rootlets, 20 to 40 percent of those rootlets. Wow, that seems like a that seems like a scary endeavor. <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a way again to permanently reduce tone uh, and get rid of spasticity. So it's typically a one and done deal. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of uh, who uh, should consider getting an SDR, there. are um, are certainly um, criteria that we use that um, we evaluate patients by because I think that one of the most important and um, biggest predictors of how people will do after an SDR is really patient selection. So um, the typical candidate that we consider for an SDR is somebody who has primarily spasticity in terms of their hypertonia, not so much dystonia. Um, mm-hmm. The patient is usually um, has is usually ambulatory with or without uh, uh, assistive devices. Uh, they should have enough underlying strength, as Dr. Ward alluded to. If you have somebody with a fair amount of uh, hypertonia and you suddenly make their legs really relaxed, um, 
they may be using some of that tone for strength. So if they don't have any, if they don't have enough underlying strength and they all of a sudden become very loose after an SDR, then that's not ideal either. So we want to make sure that right. they have enough adequate underlying strength. We're not cutting any of the motor roots that carry kind of motor signals that actually help your muscles volitionally move, but we are definitely making them looser and eliminating the spasticity. Um, typically, the patients are uh, somewhere around the four to eight year uh, age range, uh, but that's not to say we haven't done patients uh, or we haven't done rhizotomies in patients who are much older. Um, but after an SDR, you really have to retrain your muscles to move in a different pattern in a different way. So people uh, really learn to do everything again from in terms of a motor development uh, standpoint. So they learn how to roll, they learn how to sit, crawl, walk in a completely different way after an SDR, which makes the rehab portion uh, following an SDR really critical. So um, uh, Dr. Ward can kind of get into more detail about that, but the surgery is one component, but a really equally uh, important component of uh, making sure SDR is successful is the post-operative rehabilitation that patients go through. So yeah, you you nailed it right there. That was that was where we were heading with this. And and what is the the role of of you know pre and post intervention rehab for um, these neurosurgical um, procedures and and also you know other procedures like like botulinum toxins or or orthopedic surgeries. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Ward, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I'm happy to, Jen. I, what I would say is. You know, anytime you're going to undergo surgery, no matter what it is, you want to be in your best shape and your best health and your best fitness before going into that intervention. So, you know, as far as pre-intervention rehab, you know, um, no matter what procedure we're recommending at Gillette, be it a selective dorsal rhizotomy for hypertonia, um, be it um, single event multi-level orthopedic surgery for gait impairment and bone realignment. Um, our mantra is we want you to be strong before you go to surgery because mm -hmm. then you're going to be able to use that strength to recover after surgery. So from our standpoint, you know, we definitely want our patients as strong as possible beforehand. After an in intervention like selective dorsal rhizotomy, I mean, Dr. Song is right. We are just um, very, very much interested in making sure that our patients undergo a rehabilitation course that is going to support them so they have their best outcome. Um, for a, a family to undergo such a significant procedure, um, we want to give the child or the patient um, the, the, with cerebral palsy the best outcome possible. And that means having a team that's dedicated to getting them back on their feet as soon as possible doing mm -hmm. their, um, and, and enjoying their best outcome, doing their best. Um, following that intervention. So, you know, uh, the rehabilitation after a rhizotomy is not um, uncommonly done in the hospital for a period of time, uh, not because Dr. Song has made them weak um, by cutting motor nerves, but because, like she said, you know, the therapy team is really taking them back to getting used to moving those legs now when there is no hypertonia in the way. 
And and that's a little bit of a different movement because they've always either worked with or worked around their hypertonia. Once that is taken away, they need to um, have someone to help guide them safely through getting strong once again. Same is true after orthopedic surgery um, when the kids undergo that or when our young adults undergo that as well. But, you know, after a period of time of being on the inpatient unit, they're transitioned to their home program with their outpatient therapists that have cared for them all along, continuing to, you know, work on getting back uh, to the business of being in life. That's pretty, that's, that's fascinating. And I, I would think that the kids are pretty excited to um, to make their way back to the business of, of life and, and being kids again and, you know, and being able to move in a different way that that's hopefully a little less restrictive. Um, and, and definitely, um, a little bit easier, um, which has got to be pretty rewarding for you both to see. Um, where would families learn more about outcome measures and, and, um, you know, what to expect for these, um, different interventions? That's a, uh, Really great question. It's hard to get uh, really good, solid scientific answers um, if you're not in the medical community and not familiar with how to uh, locate scholarly articles uh, to be mm-hmm. true, Jen. Um, it's significantly easier to get online and get a lot of false information. So um, I would say <laughs> really leaning on your um doctors and your care team to mm-hmm. help you with what is available um, regarding um, literature that supports interventions that you're considering, mm-hmm. um, that your team is considering um, when, you know, you're trying to evaluate, well, you know, what could we expect if we um, are moving forward with this intervention, leaning on what mm-hmm. your knowledgeable care team shares with you uh, or um, can, you know, uh, and if your interest is looking at a paper, asking them if they can share it. But um, unfortunately, there is a lot of information that's available on the internet that um, is inaccurate and uh, sometimes completely and utterly false. So, um, you know, really to get true and good information, getting in with a good care team and pressing them for that, I think is going to be the safest way for our families to seek that out. Yeah. And I think I I, just as a parent, I I find that just being completely honest and open with your care team and, you know, having these conversations and and really saying, you know, this is what we're what we're what our goals are and, you know, and, and having a, having that shared decision-making and know that, you know, what, what your, what your expectations are and what your provider's expectations are, are on the same page and that you're, you're not, you don't have false hopes. Um, and, you know, that yeah. you're the, the surgeries and the choices that you're making, um, are appropriate for your child. And, um, you know, together you're making these decisions. Um, which kind of leads me to uh, the next question about, and I wanted to ask you all about other global tone management strategies or surgeries, um, just so that families would know the difference between, you know, an SDR or perhaps a ventral dorsal rhizotomy, um, so that so that people can know, you know, this one might be more appropriate for ambulatory children. This one might be more appropriate for children who are non-ambulatory who need more help, um, you know, with with 
caregiving or the parents might need more help with caregiving or um, pain and that kind of stuff. Could Dr. Song, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So for the SDR, we typically, again, think about patients who are ambulatory, but they have multi-level spasticity that's affecting multiple muscle groups in their lower extremities that is getting in the way uh, with their walking. The other thing uh, uh, should be considered in any kind of global tone management surgery is that if patients have, for example, orthopedic issues uh, that will require intervention, oftentimes we would like to get tone under good control uh, before proceeding with a major orthopedic intervention. And so global tone management, whether it's in the form of a rhizotomy, a SDR, or what we'll talk about in a second, the VDR or a baclofen pump, um, is helpful in making orthopedic surgery more durable. So again, SDR usually for ambulatory patients with mainly spasticity, limited or no dystonia. There is another operation, a variant of the SDR, which is called the ventral dorsal rhizotomy, which is newer procedure that we've uh, done at Gillette for, I would say, the last you know, eight years or so. In patients who have severe hypertonia, both spasticity and dystonia in their lower extremities. And it's really meant to uh, treat hypertonia so uh, we can improve pain and uh, positioning and uh, family's ability to care for a patient. So in terms of CP patients, it's usually the patients who are non-ambulatory, who uh, have a GMFC level four or five, for example, and what the ventral dorsal rhizotomy, also sometimes referred to as a palliative rhizotomy, entails is, again, getting access to the nerve roots that are carrying information to and from the lower extremities. So we look at not only the sensory or dorsal roots that kind of mediate spasticity, but we also look at the ventral or motor roots that are thought to mediate uh, dystonia. So we actually mm. cut about 50% of the sensory roots and about 90% of the ventral or motor roots. And we do this in a non-selective manner, meaning I don't tease apart the, those roots and then test each of them, but we basically tease apart those nerve roots and then cut in a non-selective manner uh, the sensory roots and the uh, uh, motor roots to treat both spasticity and dystonia. So obviously, if we're cutting the motor roots in a ventral dorsal rhizotomy, patients are going to be permanently weak. So this is not an uh, intervention that we would consider if somebody has uh, functional ambulation or if they have volitional movement. So if mm -hmm. somebody comes in, for example, and says, yes, my child is not walking and has severe hypertonia, but yet uh, they can kick out their leg and that's very important for their quality of life. They, you know, they have they get a lot of joy from doing that. They can maybe kick when they're swimming in the swimming pool. We would not consider a ventral dorsal rhizotomy um, because I can't guarantee that after that surgery that they would still be able to have volitional movement in their lower extremities. Um, but again, a ventral dorsal rhizotomy. Measure. Yeah. So in a ventral dorsal rhizotomy, again, it's for um, people who have really severe tone that's causing a lot of mm -hmm. pain um, or they have significant orthopedic issues that will eventually need to be addressed, or they really, because of their tone, caregivers can't provide cares comfortably for them. So they have difficulty getting them in a wheelchair. They'd have difficulty getting them dressed, getting them diapered because of the hypertonia. Mm -hmm. And so again, that's really meant to treat lower extremity, spasticity, and dystonia. 
And then again, mm-hmm. the third thing we talked about was a baclofen pump. We have control over where we put the tip of the baclofen pump catheter. So we can um, usually put it in the mid thoracic region, which would provide some relief to the arms as well as the legs, unlike a, a ventral dorsal rhizotomy or a, a selective dorsal rhizotomy. At certain doses of the baclofen pump, you can uh, get an effect on dystonia in addition to spasticity. And again, the baclofen pump is something that you can modulate. You can turn it up, you can turn it down, you can even mm-hmm. turn it off or take it out if you really don't like the effects of it. So if you have somebody with mixed tone, spasticity and dystonia, yet they have some function in their lower extremities that they can either uh, do some crawling, do some walking, the baclofen pump may be a good option for them. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, for patients who have mainly dystonia of in certain cases, they may be a candidate for something called a deep brain stimulator, which is something that is also done at Gillette. Dystonia is a different type of high tone. Um, and in certain cases of dystonia, the DBS or deep brain stimulator may be a good option, which is basically a neurosurgical procedure where leads are implanted uh, into deep areas in the brain. And then the leads are connected to a, a generator, which can, again, control and send signals to help with dystonia and certain types of movements. Um, you know, are there any kind of yeah, contraindications? Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yes, but you would need to get uh, your device checked out. So that's a common question, for example, with a baclofen pump. You can go through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the metal director without problems. You can get an MRI scan. But um, the baclofen pump needs to be checked after the MRI as well. Mm-hmm. Right. We anticipate that the pump will often stop uh, during an MRI scan, but then it re- should restart. But anytime somebody gets uh, MRI um, and has a baclofen pump, that pump needs to be interrogated after the MRI scan. Interrogating the baclofen pump, changing the dosage, that can all be done uh, through kind of a wireless programmer that just sits on top of the pump. So it's painless. Um, the pump also needs to get refilled at regular intervals, and that can be done in the office just by um, putting some numbing spray over the skin that um, overlies the pump, um, and uh, that can be done quite easily. And I think that's probably the, you know, for some families, maybe the only thing that I've seen is a is a big downside or you know, there is some planning that goes into pump refills and ensuring that, you know, you, you do have a team that's nearby or there, if there's travel time to go to get your refill um, or to have it reprogrammed, um, you know, to have the resources or the, the, the capability of traveling to your doctor and um, on a regular basis for that kind of thing. Um, if you have, if you do have a backlisten pump. Um, for sure. The, you know, or the pump requires maintenance. What do you? What advice would you give to families who are early in their CP journey? We'll start with you, Dr. Ward. Oh, that one's pretty easy, Jen. You know, so the time you put in will reap the rewards. Um, getting in with a team, asking hard questions, continuing to seek. Um, I think that um, that's the advice that I would give. It is a marathon. Um, (laughs) raising a child. Okay. And yeah, so I'm I'm speaking to the choir, Jen, when I say it is um, an ultra marathon uh, when raising a child with special needs. So 
Um, I think that, you know, getting, you know, getting comfortable in the work and the rewards that come with it uh, early on um, and being ready for um, a remarkable and adventurous journey. Um, yeah. I think that is the message that I'd like to give them. That's a beautiful message. That's, and I know a lot of families definitely appreciate it. I know as a parent, I, I absolutely appreciate it. And, um, you know, and I, I feel strongly about, you know, including your child in everything you do and, um, you know, just ensuring that they're part of it and part of life. And um, it's, it's a, that's, that's been our mantra as a family and ensuring that, um, you know, our son is with us and, and he gets to participate in every way, shape and form there is for him to participate. Um, and so it, it's, now to hear to hear physicians say hey get out there and and you know be part of it put in the work do all this it's it's great um dr song do you have any advice for families early in their journey or families considering major (laughs) surgeries in terms of just considering major surgery you just really need to be comfortable with not only the surgeon but just try to educate yourself as much as possible other advice, I think, I echo exactly what Dr. Ward said. She said it very well. Yeah. Yeah. And is there anything else you all wish families, uh, more families knew? Yeah, and I would say that, you know, earlier in our discussion, you had made mention of um, discussing the goals of the patient and the family with their care provider. And I would, I would caution any patient or family if the provider is not asking you what your goals are. Um, It could be that the two of you aren't working toward the same goal. (laughs) And so um, be sure that your care provider understands what the goals are that you have in mind um, for your own care or um, of your child with cerebral palsy. I really appreciate that advice. And the other thing I would say is that it's okay for those it's okay for those goals to change um yeah as you get older. So the goals that you may have and the aspirations that you may have at 3 months may be different than 3 years and maybe different than, you know, when somebody's 8 years old or 12 years old or 20 years old. So we try to optimize function and align kind of any kind of interventions with the patient and their family's goals, but those goals will change with time. And we recognize that. Yeah, that's yeah. part of the journey. That's part of the adventure for sure. Thanks for pointing that out, Dr. Song. Absolutely. You both have been fabulous. I've I've truly enjoyed um, having this conversation with you both. I've learned so much. Um, and it's, it's really been a pleasure to have you both on Let's Talk CP. And I'd like to also acknowledge that this episode was made possible with the support of Gillette Children's Special Specialty Healthcare. Um, and really, thank you both. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk CP. I'm Jason Benetti, CPF ambassador and sports television announcer. If you like our show and want to know more, please visit our new CP resource page at cpresource.org, where you can listen to all of our episodes and subscribe so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in Let's Talk CP, we'd appreciate a rating. And please tell a friend or another family member about the show to help others and increase cerebral palsy awareness and education. 
Be sure to tune in to Let's Talk CP for our next episode. This podcast represents the opinions of our guests and the content should not be taken as medical advice. Each person and situation is unique, so please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.